Uh, if you'll turn the Bible to um, Luke chapter 18, we're just uh, in the middle of a little series thinking about stories Jesus told. And uh, we're thinking today of a particular parable or story found in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. John read to us the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, sometimes when I'm preaching, this is my face a little bit. Sometimes when I'm preaching, I'm looking for an angle uh, to kind of make a connection between what the Bible says and how it can be relevant to us. And we'll get to the story in a little while, but one of the first things that struck me about this story is that this Pharisee character thought that he was okay. Did that strike you when John read it? He thought he was okay. And that little phrase has been going round in my head. I'm okay. Sometimes people say to me, how are you? And I go, I'm okay. Sometimes I'm lying because I'm not okay. And we all do it, don't we? How are you? I'm okay. Are you really okay? Well, I'm not really okay. I'm okay. This little phrase, I'm okay. I put that little phrase into Google and discovered... I didn't know this before the other day, that there was a very famous psychologist in the 60s who wrote a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Anyone heard of it? Hey, very good. Bonus points. Um, He wrote a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It's one of those books about having a healthy attitude. It's about self-esteem, being accepting of yourself and other people. And the healthy position, I suppose, is to say, I'm okay, you're okay. Um, Let me uh, just show you, this is my only slide. Oh, there's the book, I'm okay, you're okay. Thomas Harris, apparently 15 million copies of this book have been sold. It's still in print. And it was on the New York bestseller list for two years when it first came out. This is his little matrix. Um, Now, different psychologists read this differently. Um, Just think through this with me, just for a moment. Um, In the top left corner there, it says, I'm not okay, you're okay. Some psychologists relate that to being a child and a parent. Parents are very capable. And I'm very small and weak and need to be fed and looked after. I'm not okay, but you are okay. That's a dependent relationship, isn't it? The next box is relevant to people, I suppose, who may have suffered abuse. I'm not okay, and you're not okay. And um, in fact, one of the things that came up in my Google search when I put in I'm okay... Some of you up on popular culture will recognise that that's a song by Christina Aguilera. It's all about a girl remembering her fear when her dad was violent at home. And the lyrics are very moving. But they don't explain how she got from that to be able to say in the chorus, I'm okay. To me, that song should have been called I'm Not Okay. But she seems to be using all her strength to say, I'm okay, I really am okay. The healthy position is to say, I'm okay, you're okay. This is the happy, confident, accepting uh, place to be. 
Other people see this as a sort of blame matrix. Um, I suppose you're okay, I'm not okay would be, it's my fault. I'm okay, you're not okay would be, it's your fault. The bottom left-hand corner is really hopeless, isn't it? Because it's both our faults. And the top right-hand corner is, no one's to blame. It's win-win. It was no one's fault. Don't get too upset. Everything will work out fine. Let's be happy and not be too judgmental. Well, why do I point all that out? It made me think about this Pharisee guy in the story. Where would you put the Pharisee in this story? Which quadrant would you put the Pharisee in? Which quadrant would you put him in? Well, just look with me at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. What is he saying? Why did Jesus tell this parable? Because the Pharisee thought to himself, I'm okay. Not just you're not okay, but everyone else is not okay. In fact, I'm the only one who is okay. He was confident of his own righteousness and he looked down on everybody else. And it made me start to ask questions about how people view God. What is interesting is that his super confidence in himself kind of leads him to despise other people, doesn't it? It's something quite close to contempt. Where would you put yourself in this matrix in relation to God? Some people might say, I'm okay, but God is definitely not okay. I'm angry with him. If there is a God, he's lousy. Some people might say, I'm okay, you're okay. I'm happy with my life, God's happy with his. It's irrelevant. Where would you put yourself in that matrix? Well, this idea, this angle, I suppose, of I'm okay, is very, uh, quite by accident, it's very relevant to where we've been over the last two weeks as well. I didn't really intend it this way, but let me just uh, show you. There is a Bible word that describes spiritually this idea of being okay with God. It's the Bible word, to be justified. And quite by accident, it appears in all three stories we've been looking at. So let me show you. Two weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the shrewd manager. If you just flick back a page to Luke chapter 16, and Jesus tells that very strange story that we looked at. It's one of the oddest stories that Jesus tells. And in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money Chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of man. But God knows your hearts. So the Pharisees were trying to look okay in the eyes of other people when in actual fact God knew what their hearts were like on the inside and they were in fact not okay they were trying to look okay but they weren't okay and Jesus goes on to say what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight 
Then, uh, last week we were looking at the parable of Good Samaritan and we saw that Jesus told that story uh, in Luke chapter 10, was it? Where were we last week? Luke chapter 10. And, um, yeah, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan in answer to a question. It's a conversation with a legal expert. And the the second question is in verse 28. You've answered correctly, Jesus, but I do this and you'll live. And what does verse 29 say? But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, who is my neighbour? He was embarrassed. He was hot under the collar. And he wanted to look like he was okay. He was trying to be a smart aleck. He wanted to look okay. And then when we come to this... um, Uh, passage in Luke chapter 18 what is it that Jesus says the whole point of the story really comes down to this verse 14 is the key Jesus says I tell you that this man the second man in the story rather than the other the Pharisee went home what justified before God So in other words, Jesus is telling this story and the man is okay even though he looks like he's not okay and he's actually okay not in the eyes of other people but in the eyes of God. So quite by accident all the three stories that we've looked at two weeks and this this week all have the word justified in them somehow. What is it to be okay? Well It is very significant, isn't it, that here in this story, God is looking at both of these men and making a value judgment on their lives. And he's saying to one of them, you're not okay. And he's saying to the other one, you are okay. The problem is that they both thought the opposite the Pharisee, th- the Pharisee would have said, I'm okay, Every- the problem's everyone else. And yet he went home with God saying, he's not okay. And this other guy who prays in such a humble way, Jesus says, I tell you that this man went home with God saying, you're okay. It's a very shocking story. The way justified in the Bible, we- we've uh, talked about this before, haven't we? Jai did his series, Big Ways That End in Shun, Justification. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It is a legal term. You could hear it maybe in a court. It means that the judge declares you not guilty and says that you're innocent and righteous. It means that all the evidence has been destroyed. There's no record that we've ever sinned. It also means that God keeps no record of our sins. Instead, what he does is put to our account the righteousness of Jesus. And all of that comes by faith to those who trust in the Lord Jesus. A person isn't justified or made okay by their own merit. It is a gift of God to declare us righteous through the work of Jesus as we'll see 
What is shocking in this story is that the piety of the Pharisees is so greatly admired and the tax collectors are despised and shunned and to think that God might prefer a tax collector's prayer to that of a pious, holy Pharisee. So this story really is all about how you and I can be okay with God. And what Jesus says here is very shocking and very surprising. What, what I thought we would do, I, I, I don't know if, if um, we've talked too much before about Pharisees. So I thought, first of all, we might just try and spend a few minutes just identifying who these Pharisees actually are or were. And then we'll have a little look through, we'll just walk through the story and, um, and draw some conclusions at the end. I, I, I personally think that the Pharisees get a bit of a bad press. Um, we tend to think of the Pharisees as bad guys. Uh, some people actually have argued in history that that's because of the way they're portrayed in the Bible. And um, some people who don't really, I suppose, believe the Bible uh, as God's word uh, say that you know the Pharisees get a raw deal. These Christians are so biased against the Pharisees. The, the problem is that there's not a lot written in secular history outside of the Bible about these Pharisees. There is some, and they're a bit enigmatic. But um, let me just have a little think with you uh, about these guys. I, I, I think this is relevant to our culture and to us as a church as well, be, before we get into the story in detail. I should have had some slides for this really, I just ran out of time, so I'm going to have to paint weird pictures here. So can you concentrate? In the Old Testament, it's very helpful this year that we went through the book of Ezra, because uh, this will help us. In the Old Testament, Israel was a country, a nation state, and God was their ultimate king. Eventually they had human kings as well, but they were a country, they had land, they had laws, um, they, they were a nation state like any other nation state. But as we found and went through the book of Ezra, as a nation they fell very badly. And they were taken off into exile. And they were never the same again. And one of the key things to remember is that when the Jews came back to Jerusalem and Judea, they were never again a nation state. What, the, what they ended up being was a religious subculture in an occupied country. And although there were some ups and downs between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was no real change in that by the time Jesus came on the scene because the country was still occupied by then by the Roman Empire. So what you have is a kind of nation that isn't really a nation. It, they have a religious national identity, but they have no political authority or power. Their land isn't their own. They live there and they're tolerated but they're living as a religious subculture in an occupied land. Does that make sense? Jesus is born into that kind of environment. And you can imagine the richness and the complexity of a nation like that. Who's in charge? Who kind of tells people what to do? Who governs the local community? And clearly, and it goes right back to the book of Ezra, they wanted to maintain their identity as God's people. 
So they had religious laws. They had purity laws. Uh, there were many uh, people within the nation who tried to hark back to the, the good old days of the Old Testament and enforce those things to maintain some sort of subcultural identity even though they're in an occupied land now. Added to that, there's always a longing, isn't there, for, for the, that the days of former glory would return. You get that? When is God going to come and comfort his people? Do you remember when Jesus was born... And uh, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple and there were two old people in the temple. Two old people, a man and a woman. And both of them were longing for the redemption of Jerusalem or the consolation of Israel. What they were waiting for was for the glory days to come back. They were proud of the fact that they were God's people in this national history. When would the Messiah come? Even Jesus' disciples, by the end of the Gospels into the book of Acts, say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? They're thinking in nationalistic terms. So who's in charge? Well, the Pharisees are part of this. I want you to think about four groups here. And this is relevant because, in many ways, the Christian church is a religious subculture in an occupied country isn't it we're not a Christian country but we have an identity as believers who believe in Jesus the Bible how are we to live how are we to influence how does that work well how did it work for the Jews we could we could decide to separate ourselves and go and live in a ghetto couldn't we that nasty world out there awful let's go and live in a ghetto and love one another there was a group in the first century called the Essenes. That's exactly what they did. You had to pass tests for over two years to be admitted into their group. They were very strict, very pure. Have you heard of the Qumran scrolls? They were written by the Essene community who lived out in the desert. They didn't all live in a desert. But that would be one solution, wouldn't it? We could say, let's go and live in a ghetto. We'll all love one another. It'll be a taste of heaven. And that nasty world, we'll leave them all outside. Those impure, pagan, ungodly people. Well, we could be Essenes. We could decide to fight. There was another group in the first century called the Zealots. We're going to smash the Romans to pieces. This is not their country. It's our country. God's country. Jesus had a disciple called Simon the Zealot. Imagine having a Zealot in your little band of merry men. He wanted to kill everyone. <laughs> these, these people were like, the, I suppose they were the, the first century terrorists. They, they were very angry. And some people are like that, aren't they? Injust- we want to fight and overthrow the oppressor and bring back those glory days. So you could separate yourselves. You could fight. There was another group called the Sadducees. And they were... I suppose they thought, well, we'll rule what we can. If we can't rule the whole country, we'll rule what we can. And they were interested in power. The Sadducees were really the wealthy ruling classes. And then you have the Pharisees. From what little we do know, the Pharisees were very influential among the common people. Being a Pharisee wasn't 
It wasn't a job. You would have a job, but you would also be a Pharisee if you wanted to be. They had no political power or authority, but they had enormous influence. It was like a loose association. And they all subscribed to a way of life that would maintain their identity as God's people while still living in this sense of being an occupied country. These Pharisees were very serious about their relationship with God. Some people have even compared them to the prophets in the Old Testament. This is a very complex and difficult period in their history. But the Pharisees recognised reality, but also wanted to keep themselves pure and holy, and they tried their best to interpret and obey God's law. They weren't bad people. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. These men were respected as Bible-believing, holy, pious men. It wasn't a kind of negative term. So you f- and th- this group were influential, so you find in the Gospels the Pharisees inviting Jesus to come and have dinner with them. They recognised he was a teacher. Come and, have a, come and have a meal with us. They wanted to find out what he was teaching. And if he was teaching something wrong, to quieten him so that he wouldn't be spreading error. What about Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus at night to ask him a question, didn't he? Just flip back with me into chapter 17. It sh- having said all we said, it should be no surprise that in chapter 17 and verse 20, this section that we're looking at begins with the, Pharisee, with the Pharisees coming to Jesus and asking, when's the kingdom of God going to come? Does that make sense to you now? The Pharisees, totally immersed in their culture, Jesus begins to teach and they go to him and say, okay, when's the kingdom of God going to come? We're trying to influence things morally, but when is God going to come and do something to restore our former glory? Jesus answers effectively and says, when God's kingdom comes, you'll know. You'll know. But first, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. But when his kingdom really comes, it will be a huge shock. All this political and domestic activity will be carrying on and he will come very suddenly. And then Jesus tells two parables about prayer. Into that mix, Jesus then tells two parables. The first one is a parable about persistence in prayer. It's interesting, actually, there's not many parables that Jesus tells where the explanation is given for why he told it. But it happens twice in this chapter. In verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And then in verse 9, 
to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So in the context of all this, the kingdom of God is coming. Don't give up praying and don't look down on other people with a kind of smug, self-righteous satisfaction. And Jesus tells two stories to illustrate those points. The story he tells in the second case that we're looking at today is shocking. Because you have this respected Pharisee, not a Sadducee, the wealthy ruling classes, not an Essene, isolated separatist, not a zealot who wants to fight, but a Pharisee. And on the other side, a tax collector, the worst of the worst. This person doesn't even fit into any of the groups. He is taking money from his own countrymen to give to the Romans. And exploiting his own people. The kingdom of God is coming. How can I know that I'm going to be okay? Should I sign up to be a Pharisee? The tax collector, on the other hand... How can he possibly be anything to do with God's kingdom? He's a robber. He's an outcast. He's betrayed his own people. Can you get the sense of the shock that Jesus is trying to cause here? One man goes to pray and God says he's not okay. The other man prays and God says he went home and he was okay. Well, let's have a little, just uh, hopefully some of that background is helpful. Let, let's have a little look at the story itself. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 9. I want to um, just emphasize, first of all, the idea of contempt here. Um, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. That, that phrase really is literally all the rest. This is a man who is so supremely full of himself that he just thinks everybody else is a waste of space. Meet people like that sometimes. It is a a statement of sheer contempt. It really means to think nothing of everybody else. All the rest, I'm okay, all the rest... They're beneath my attention even. It's a shocking thing, isn't it, for someone to have an attitude like that when they are a religious person. Is this man not supposed to love God and love other people? And yet he thinks he's okay and everybody else is beneath contempt. Secondly, I want you to notice that these two men went up to the temple to pray. Um, you've all come to church today you, you, I, we could write this couldn't we about us there was a group of people in Rotherham and they all went to church on Sunday afternoon to pray but do you see in this story that there are differences between these two men as they, they both go to church to pray But there's a great difference between them, isn't there? there? 
The Pharisee was boasting. The tax collector was praying. The Pharisee went home a worse man than when he'd gone. The tax collector went home forgiven. The Pharisee goes to the temple to pray precisely because everyone else would see him there. Is he going to worship God? Or is this some form of like self-worship? One writer says he went to the temple to pray because it was a public place, more public than the street corners, and therefore he would have many eyes upon him who would applaud his devotion. Um, Jesus talks about this, doesn't he? If you keep your finger there and just look back to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Or, well, Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, actually. Page 970. Um, Richard was talking us through some of these uh, verses from the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then in verse 5, he elaborates on that in relation to prayer and says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And he goes on to teach them what's become known as the Lord's Prayer. For Jesus, the hypocrite is the person who does what he or she does to gain credit in the eyes of other people. Isn't that amazing? Someone can come to the temple to pray and what they're actually doing is showing off. <laughs> it's like, does God hear prayers like that? The Pharisee comes just to show his face. The other guy comes to pour out the contents of his heart, doesn't he? So how do you come to church? How do I come to church? Do we come just to show our faces, gain some credit, gain respect? Or do we come to really seek the Lord, our God, to pour out our hearts to him in worship and, and in prayer? Uh, the next thing I want you to notice is um, verse 11. It says the Pharisee stood up. Here's a question. Do you ever wonder why it is that Christians close their eyes and bow their heads when they pray? Do you ever, do you ever wonder where that, where that comes from? We all do it, don't we? Let's pray. We did it earlier. Tim said, let's pray. And everyone went. It wasn't the case so much in the Old Testament. Um, the Jewish posture for prayer was to stand and to lift up your hands and your head to heaven with your eyes open and to speak to God in that kind of way. 
Maybe the biblical foundation for our tradition of bowing our heads and closing our eyes comes from this very story because there's a humility in it, I don't know. There's examples in the Old Testament. Uh, Solomon, uh, it says, uh, stood in the temple, lifted up his, spread out his hands to heaven and, uh, and prayed. Jesus, in Mark's Gospel, says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive your sins. So the idea of standing in prayer was a common thing. But there's a, there's a bit of an attitude, I think, going on here. The word that's used here for this Pharisee standing is the same word that's used in the next chapter for Zacchaeus. You know Zacchaeus? Um, it's on the opposite page there, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord... The, the idea is of standing up and representing yourself to everyone else, isn't it? And this is what this man's doing. He stood up to show off. And there's an attitude here. The Pharisee stood up and prayed. It actually says in NIV here, he stood up and prayed about himself. The footnote says to himself. His prayer isn't even getting past the ceiling. He's just standing up and boasting. Now, Jesus draws attention to two things in this man's prayer. Um, the first thing is that he thanks God that he's not like all the rest. And the second thing Jesus draws attention to is, is his list of boasting in verse 12, all the good things he's done. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because he starts well. Oh God, thank you. I mean, that's a good way to start a prayer to God, isn't it? Thank you. Unless you then go and say, thank you that I'm not like everybody else. Oh God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Riffraff, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector over here. What a scumbag. Thank you God that you've not made me like him. He's the lowest of the low. Thanking God in a way that sort of bigs yourself up. What's that all about? This kind of judgmental attitude to other people is the major problem, isn't it, of self-righteous people. God is patient, kind, as we'll see, merciful. But often those who claim to know him have no patience, no kindness, no love. They just think they're better than other people. Only their group was righteous. It even seems like he stands on his own apart from all the other worshippers so he won't be contaminated. Apparently, I wrote it down here, there's a Jewish saying that a true rabbi ought to thank God every day of his life that he was not created a Gentile, a pleb, or a woman. Imagine that. Imagine getting up in the morning and saying, thank you God that I'm not a Gentile, a pleb, or a woman. He, he kind of 
severs himself and separates himself from all the others and puts himself on a pedestal. That's, Jesus told this story to people who were confident and looked down on everybody else. The second thing Jesus draws attention to is his boasting. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get. You know, this man has got a lot going for him, really, hasn't he, morally? He, he has avoided great sins. He's known as fair, pure. He even does more than his duty. He tithes. What is his problem? What is his problem then? He was a good man trying his best to be holy. What is his problem? I'll tell you, I'm going to throw that question open. What is his problem? You shall ask some answers. This, this guy's a model citizen. What's his problem? Go on, Don. He's thinking of himself rather than God. Yep. Go on. Self righteous. There you go. You obviously want me in your team because I'm brilliant. He's a good man. But what's his problem? Pride. Self righteous pride. And it's the kind of insidious self-righteous pride that causes him not to love other people. Because he thinks he's better than them then. And the whole tone of his praying is, I'm okay. You're not okay. Did I get that right? Did? That matrix was a nightmare, wasn't it? I'm okay. You're not okay. In fact, everyone else is not okay. Let's have a look at the tax collector as we walk through this. Verse 13, the tax collector. Well, Jesus actually says three things about this man and then tells us what he prayed as well. And the three things are, first of all, he stood at a distance. Secondly, he wouldn't even look up to heaven. And thirdly, he beat his breast. Odd chain of phrase. It's not Tarzan. He stood at a di- what does that mean? He stood at a distance from God. He stood at a distance from the Pharisee. He stood at a distance from everyone else because he felt so unworthy. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. There's a distance there. There's humility there. And I was wondering what this phrase, beat his breast, man. So if you're wondering as well. Uh, some commentators say this was very common in ancient cultures. If someone was grieving like a bereavement and the, and the, the idea of beating your breast in a kind of grief so there's distance there there's humility there there's sadness and grief there and his prayer what is his prayer oh God have mercy on me a sinner that is not the best translation because the word ah is not in that sentence it is the word the. Actually what he's praying is, God have mercy on me, the 
sinner. The Pharisees thinking of everybody else as sinners. But this man doesn't think about anybody else at all, is he? God have mercy on me. He's not thinking about them. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I think you would agree with me that he comes to God in great seriousness. He means business. He's in deadly earnest. He's not coming to the temple to negotiate with God. He isn't coming to the temple to boast to God. He isn't making any mitigating plea. There are no excuses here. It's the Pharisees' fault. Nothing. He earnestly prays to God for mercy. He certainly doesn't want justice. Because if justice was to fall, he, he, he would be condemned. Oh God, be merciful to me. What does that mean? Forgive my sins. Be reconciled to me. Take me into your favour. Receive me graciously. Love me freely. One writer says, this is a man coming like a beggar asking for alms. Not alms. Alms, A-L-M. Money. A beggar coming for alms. It is a shocking contrast. Let's um, look at Jesus' application in verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified. Okay, before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a very surprising and opposite thought to often everything that we imbibe in our lives, isn't it? The world says, be strong. Stick up for yourself. Don't show any weakness. And even if you're not okay, pretend you are. You can't win in this life if you're weak. People will walk all over you and take advantage of you. And the whole thought of self-esteem, the whole world tells us, doesn't it, to think well of yourself. Look in the mirror and tell yourself that you're beautiful. Don't let anyone tell you that you're less than worthy. Don't let anyone put you down. If someone tries to put you down, they're not a true friend. Get rid of them. Surround yourselves with people who will tell you how great you are. But Jesus says here, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee justified himself. I'm okay. The tax collector came and said, Oh God, I'm not okay. Please, make me okay. I think one of the first things, we we thought about the background being a little bit to do with the kingdom of God coming. I think one of the first rules in God's kingdom is to realise that in God's sight we're not okay but that he loves us 
very, very much. Isn't that the best news we can hear? I want to just close with three. So I think there's three, three things. There might be two, there might be four, but there are three. So count them. This is number one. Conviction comes before conversion. This is the great law of God's kingdom. One writer says, this is inscribed in gold over the gate into the kingdom of God. That conviction must come before conversion. I I think what that's saying is, you won't come to God for medicine unless you know you're ill. It, It is a very strange thing in Christianity that one of the first things that happens when God begins to deal with you, me, anyone, is the first thing that happens is that we feel uncomfortable. I'm not okay. That isn't because God wants to crush us, harm us, hurt us. It is because he wants us to open our hearts to him in the way this man did. This is a key that unlocks the whole of the Bible. We're, in our family, we've been watching Harry Potter films. Um, I was going to say Lord of the Rings, then. I get mixed up between those two stories. It's very hard when you get to my age. Harry Potter. And there's one great scene where he gets given, in Dumbledore's will, a snitch that he caught in his first Quidditch match. And the snitch is there, flying around, but he can't open it. It's kind of impenetrable to him. Eventually, he does. I won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. You probably have. But, you know, the Bible's like that. To many people, it's like a little floating snitch. How do I unlock it? How do I get into it? How do I understand it? I read it. I, it, I find it compelling. But what's its secret? Back in Matthew 5, Jesus makes a series of statements known as the Beatitudes. And he nails this for us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Conviction comes before conversion. And the key that unlocks the Bible really is to see that we're not okay. And that the whole point of the revelation that God's given to us is that God knows what we are and has sent a saviour to come and do what we couldn't do, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve so that we could come into God's kingdom. And until we realise that we're not okay, that that will make no... It'll be impenetrable to us. That's the first thing. The second thing is... Isn't it just amazing? Is, can, I, can I say that again? Isn't it just amazing that God justifies sinners? Isn't that incredible? This man, Jesus says, went home justified. God in heaven said, do you know what? He's okay. He was a tax collector for goodness sake. He was a robbing charlatan. But he knew it. 
And he comes to the temple and says, Oh God, I'm not okay. Will you, will you be merciful to someone like me? And there's a huge cheer in heaven as God says, Yep, I will. I will take all your sin and I'll lay it on my lovely son and I'll put him to grief so that you can be forgiven and washed clean. I know what you are and I love you a great deal. And I've sent my son to be a saviour for you. Do you know, this is a biblical record of an answered prayer, isn't it? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God's answer? Okay then. That's an answered prayer, isn't it? Forgive me. Alright. Is that not an answered prayer? Oh God, I'm needy. Fill me. Alright then. This is a generous God, isn't it? I'll forgive you when you've pulled your socks up. Does God know? Be merciful to me. Okay. I love the word he uses. God be merciful to me. The word merciful is the word that we get the word hilarious from. I'm not quite sure how that works. But the sense is God be cheerful towards me. Don't be grumpy towards me don't judge me condemn me abandon me send me away God be cheerful to me and you need to do it by taking away my sin and he does it by sending Jesus do you know what really struck me about this story is how God can bring good out of evil And how the devil brings evil out of what's good. This man, the Pharisee, thought he was good. All mixed up. Pride. How the devil turns what's good into what's prideful. And yet how God can turn what's broken into something good. Some lovely verses in the Bible. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Psalm 147 verse 6 The Lord lifts up the humble but he casts the wicked to the ground. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I think there is a sense in that we can't really know our two selves until we know unconditional love isn't that what we all crave 
I'm not sure that we can know harmony in our friendships, relationships, until we can trust implicitly one another. We crave, don't we? we in fact, what, what we really want is for other people who know us deeply to say, it's okay. You're okay. I love you. Often in our lives, we're hiding because we're worried that if people knew the real me, they wouldn't love me. This man was not hiding. He brings it all to God and says, God, I'm not okay. Please be merciful to me. And God said, yes, I will be merciful to you. Is there somewhere you can go where you can find unconditional love? True understanding, acceptance. One writer summed it up with this sentence, the man who cannot believe that God loves and forgives will always turn to self-righteousness or to despair. Only faith, a faith that lets us see God frees us to discover our real selves. I think the third thing I wanted to say was, was that this is true in our relationship with God but it's also true in our relationships with one another. It's true in our marriages, it's true in our friendships, it's true in our families, it is true in our community as a community of believers. If we are a church that is pretending we're only really being like a Pharisee who is coming to church to gain credit. But until those barriers come down and we can be honest with one another and trust the fact that we love one another unconditionally as God does, our community won't be authentic as it ought to be. Who do you identify with today as we close? Jesus told this story, it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. And what an encouraging story it is. Have you entered the kingdom of God? Have you known what it is for God to touch your heart and to show you that when it comes down to it, we're not okay? And ha have you been able to then look away and see what God has done for you because he loves you in sending Jesus to be a great saviour. The tax collector stood at a distance, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified, okay, before God. I pray that every one of us will go home today, even today, this afternoon, knowing for sure that we are okay with God through the Lord Jesus. Amen.